thank you for going with me on this journey in these sermons called A Reason to Believe. Uh, and we've started down a road, and I don't know if you've been here or not, but uh, we started with uh, talking about a reason to believe that there is a God. And really the question in this whole series of sermons in this road we go down is, do we have a, is it more reasonable, reasonable and rational to believe that what we believe in our Christian faith, that it is more rational and reasonable than um, the opposing worldview? And I, every step of the way, I, I want to say, no, it actually, it makes more sense. It's a, it's a more cohesive, comprehensive, a consistent worldview than what the opposing worldview sets before us. We have a reason to believe, and that starts with uh, that God exists. I know that's really basic. Um, we talked about that next week that if we if we just if we're going down that road, the next place we really come to is is the philosophical question. Where did we come from? And do we believe that God is our creator? And then last week we came to the place, just we're going on down the road. Um, do we believe that that God who exists and is our creator and interjected himself into human history, that he accurately um, and reliably recorded his activity and his words in a book. And is that book the Bible? And I kind of addressed that in my devotionals this week. Uh, I want to say before we kind of keep going down the road this Sunday, that next Sunday we're going to come to a rest stop in the journey. And we're going to pull over on the side of the road. And uh, I'm working on something. And uh, I want to tell a story next week that's, a little bit different, but I thought it was Valentine's Day. It ought to be kind of a, a feel-good Sunday, shouldn't it? It's been kind of heavy, you know, a lot. Some of y'all have really affirmed me, and y'all are really into this, and I assume that the others of you, the 90% that haven't said anything to me, I kind of assume what that your take is on all of this. But uh, bless your hearts if you affirmed me. Um, and so we'll just keep plodding forward. Um, the reality is, as we go on down this road from the existence of God to God being our creator to the Bible, we, we come across a pretty difficult uh, issue. And it is the presence of evil in our world. That philosophically, we say, now wait a second. How does this how is this consistent with an all-powerful, loving God who created us and wants the best for us? Why does the world look like this? And it is the reality. So I want to talk today, uh, answer some objection, objections about the presence of evil. Um, on a pastoral side of this issue, 
I believe, and I'm not a psychologist. I don't even know in all my education whether I ever, ever had a psychology class. I don't think so. Um, my hunch as a person and as a pastor is that many people erect a barrier, an intellectual barrier in their minds out of their own hurt and disappointment in life. That's my hunch. Things happen. Evil rears its ugly head. And uh, people, out of that hurt and disappointment, go, no. I can't believe that. I, it's true for some of the men, the, the four men that we they highlighted, whether it was C.S. Lewis, whose mother died right before his 10th birthday. Um, I believe it was Josh McDowell that had an abusive father. And many times, people's response to that hurt and disappointment in life, which is a reality, Everyone concedes that. They say, I can't believe in that. And so, um, I think there, there's three objections that I want to bring out and hopefully talk, talk about these. Um, and I have a word that's going to summarize each one of these. I think some people say, from the opposing worldview, First objection, when they were confronted with the presence of evil, how can a God who is good and all-powerful allow suffering? How can a God who is good and all-powerful allow suffering? I think there's a second objection and this is, I just kind of put it in my own words. Um, and if you're offended by this, then good. Christians are hypocrites. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Christians are hypocrites and are responsible for so much violence and hate in the world. And I am just as good as any Christian. I think that's one of the objections at this point in our journey. Uh, Christians are hypocrites and are responsible for so much violence and hate in the world, and I'm just as good as any Christian. The third objection in the presence of evil is I cannot believe in a loving God who sends people to hell. I cannot believe in a loving God who sends people to hell. Um, so I've chosen just to summarize each one of those objections with a word, suffering, hypocrisy, hell, just to help you. Let's talk about the first one. Let's talk about suffering. How can a God who is good and all-powerful allow suffering? 
the argument would go like this, that if God is good, but he allows suffering, then he must not be all-powerful or he would do something about it. Or God could be all-powerful, but he allows suffering because he's really not good. But the opposing worldview would say it is you can't have a good and all-powerful God and still have uh, suffering in the world. I would say that is a far too simplistic uh, understanding of life. Um, it is interesting to me to, uh, for them even to say this from the opposing worldview. First thing it does is it acknowledges evil in our world, which is something significant and probably we're going to talk a little bit about next week. Uh, and we've already talked about. But you see, when you acknowledge evil in the world, to acknowledge evil is to imply a standard of good. If you look at the world and say, wait a second, the world should not be like this, you say, well, why shouldn't it be like this? Well, because that's not right. And you go back to really one of those, that second sermon, it's like, where does that sense of what is right and what is good and what ought to be, where does that come from if we are just a product of an evolutionary process? And we're just a part of nature. Why would you contend for good if nature is all there is? Because good is a metaphysical sense. It is not a part of the physical world. Secondly, it is arrogant to believe that I know what is ultimately good in the world. It is arrogant of me to believe that I would know better than at least theoretically an all-knowing, all-powerful God. No, no, I, I, no. I look at that and say, no, that's, that's got to be wrong. But you see, that's arrogant of me because I don't actually know all the facts. And, uh, and I'm not saying there aren't atrocities in the world. My illustration would be, like, just suppose I had a grandson. Let's just suppose I have a grandson who's four years of age. Let's suppose Wednesday afternoon, maybe we went out somewhere and maybe we had a little bit of fire and we decided to roast marshmallows with s'mores. Maybe the little boy who's, you know, not very big has two s'mores after his lunch, which is uh, kind of a heavy load. And maybe parents are hearing this for the first time. I apologize. I, this is a theor theoretical illustration. What if that little boy on the way back into town says, Papa D, I I'm sorry, that little boy says to his grandfather, why don't we stop at Dairy Queen for ice cream? And, you know, it, it's hard for Papa D to put down his foot. But I'm thinking, child, you just had two s'mores. You don't need a dipped cone. And I'm not saying we haven't done it before. But maybe Wednesday I just said, no. How does a four-year-old see that? Well, Papa D's pretty mean because we've gone by for a dipped cone most times that we've been out and about, but not today. Uh, is it possible there's a higher understanding to life that says, boy, you've had enough sugar for the afternoon. You don't need any more, which is code language for wait till we get back to Nan's house and she will feed you another snack. You know, I use that as an illustration to say that we have limited understanding of life, particularly compared to an all-knowing God. 
and that it is possible, it is possible that God who knows all things can use suffering for good. And I'm not saying all things that have happened in your life are good, but uh, I wanted to open with that story of Joseph in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Huh. Joseph speaks that after 20 years of being in the proverbial pit. But at the end of 20 years, he goes, no, I see it. God meant it for good. Um, God, so how can a God who is good and all-powerful allow suffering? Well, the reality is, is that God created us with free will. And when you create beings with free will, you raise the possibility of sin. And the reality is that human sin leads to brokenness and suffering in the world. The only other option that God would have had, at least in my understanding, was to program us as robots and for us not to have choice. We could have been like the rest of nature and just done what we were genetically programmed to do. Uh, but God made us with free will. In my understanding, in my little brain, God had a greater purpose. He had an ultimate good. And the ultimate good is that he would create free will individuals who would choose to love him, not be programmed to obey him. It was, it was a risk. In fact, God knew in a lot of ways it was going to blow up. And it did and it, it has and we live in the debris. But I believe God in a very simplistic way as we answer this question, God had an ultimate good that he doesn't judge sin immediately, but he works out his purpose and his ultimate purpose is that we would choose to love him. The second objection is that Christians are hypocrites and are responsible for so much violence and hate in the world and I'm just as good as any Christian. And the answer to that question is, true all right let's move on to the next one no I'm joking Christians are sinners um, moral failures within the church are highlighted aha um, there are there is there are public examples of abuse in churches and church corruption Here's the thing, the Bible is very honest about the sin in God's people. In fact, the Bible is so much about confronting God's people about their sin. You see it in the Old Testament prophets. <laughs> and they do condemn the pagan nations 
But there's a beat down on God's people of just calling out their sin. Uh, here's the other thing. You see it in Jesus. It was the religious people who were hypocrites that Jesus just pounds. So the Bible acknowledges. It's not like God says, oh, it, it doesn't matter. No, it does matter. In fact, I've sent the prophets and I've sent my son to confront my own people about their sin. Um, it's kind of interesting that the opposing worldview theorizes that morality arose out of the evolutionary process. It's not rational. Because the, the moral sense... And so much more about us, and we talked about this in one of the sermons, is a metaphysical dimension to life. Everything else in the created world is a part of the natural world. It's only human beings that have this metaphysical, beyond the physical uh, dimension to their life, uh, which would include uh, a sense of right and wrong, of consciousness, but also conscience, the sense of beauty, love, uh, so many other things that are metaphysical that are not, it is irrational to believe that somewhere in the midst of the evolutionary process, the metaphysical sprang from the physical. It's irrational. The, the metaphysical does not spring from the physical. In fact, the metaphysical, that which is beyond nature, is what created nature itself. It is irrational. Um and I don't have time to trace all this out this morning, but so much of this, I believe, comes from hurt and disappointment, but it's doublespeak. And so what the other opposing view would say, that in the midst of the evolutionary process, we developed this sense of common good, of morality, that helped us survive as people. But they would also say in the midst of that, also religion sprang up, sprung up, sprang up. So I don't know what my tense is there, but anyhow... Um, and so you have this sense of morality, but then also you have as a part of the evolutionary process this belief in a God and this religious thing. But what, what the, um, the naturalist, the atheist will say in their worldview is that they affirm this sense of morality of common good that developed in the evolutionary process, but this sense of religion, of a sense of a God, they don't affirm. And this is why they would say, they would say because the religious corrupts the moral. This is their point of you call yourself religious, but uh, you have hypocrisy, you have sin in your life. And sort of the irrational whole line of thought here is that somehow if you would eliminate religion and just leave man to be moral and good, that would be better. Just leave man alone. Don't mix religion in with morality because that messes up the morality and leads to hypocrisy. And that's really more than my brain can even wrap itself around. Not just this morning, but this week as I tried to think through what that meant. Um, but they would say religion is the cause of so much abuse and violence in our world. And they would bring out uh, the crusades. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition, the Salem witch trials. Um, the implication of that is that non-religious people would be better than Christians. If you just left man to himself, that he would be good. But actually, 
that does not square with history. Because when atheism is taken to its ultimate conclusion, when a society so eliminates God and this, this uh, absolute sense of morality, historically it has led to the greatest atrocities. And I'm not saying it's about, oh, well, we've killed this many, but, oh, you've killed all this many. But historically, that's accurate. If you just take the last hundred years, atheistic China, Russia, and Nazi Germany are responsible for 100 million people being killed in the last 100 years. Atheistic China, Russia, and Nazi Germany. I think we'll talk about this next week, but the question is, how do you account not for good? How do you account for evil in our world? Why is there an Adolf Hitler? If man is a part of the evolutionary process, has developed this sense of common good, then it's a part of who he is. This is who we are. We are all good. And I'll come back to what, what I believe the Bible says. How do you account for an Adolf Hitler if evolutionary wise we have developed in this sense of common good? It's not so much that we have to account for good, it's that we have to account for evil. And the reality is it does not square with human experience that people are basically good. That's what our world would like to say. Uh, just for instance, uh, slavery. Did you know that every culture throughout human history has practiced slavery? Every culture in human history has practiced slavery, selling people as property, using people as property. There's probably more things, there's a, maybe that's as offensive as anything. Historically, when did that end? Where was the... Where did the abolitionist movement start? Abolition to abolish slavery. Within Christianity. Specifically a man by the name of William Wilberforce as a devout Christian in England and eventually spreads to America, the abolitionist movement. From that point in the 1800s, before that, every culture had participated in slavery until Christians rose up and said, this is not right. Um, who stood against Adolf Hitler in Germany? 
church. The face of that would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor who gave his life. Where did the civil rights movement in America arise from? The African-American church in America. Not liberal politicians. From the African-American church. And obviously Martin Luther King is the face of that. Um, historically you have to acknowledge that yes there is evil that has been done by the, the church and within Christianity but you also to be consistent must acknowledge the good that Christians have done and so yes Christians are hypocrites and Christians have been responsible for much violence and hate in the world, but they've also been much of what is good and the best in our world. And Christianity, I would say to make a little bit of a pivot when they say I can be just as good as any Christian. If religion were just about morality, maybe so. But you can't just condense the Christian faith to morality. It's more than that. Let me go on to the third, which is I cannot believe in a loving God who sends people to hell. Uh, it is interesting philosophically that um, the people who would say that would be offended by the sense of judgment or justice. Uh, actually, that's philosophically inconsistent. Uh, because they would contend that God should not allow injustice in the world. If they see injustice, they say, well, how can God allow that? So you have this sense of justice. So should God deal with the justice or not? And the answer would be uh, actually, quite honestly, hypocritical. But it's in, I would say philosophically it's inconsistent. Because it would say that I believe that God ought to deal with the injustice in the world. But when it comes to me, then I just want God to love me. And so God shouldn't allow injustice in the world, but he shouldn't judge me. He ought to respond to me in love. And actually the, the question becomes in the statement would be, would be that if God can forgive people, then why doesn't God just forgive people instead of dealing with them uh, in judgment? Uh, the question would be, how would you feel if God just forgave Adolf Hitler would that offend you and the answer would be well of course so there is some sense of justice that says God ought to deal with this and so it's rather simplistic to say why didn't God just forgive everybody um, it is also interesting to me uh, and I phrased this question in such a way I said I can't believe in a loving God who sends people to hell there is this sense that God ought to be loving and that philosophically the question becomes why do you believe that God ought to be loving? Where is that sense of ought that God 
ought to be loving? Why, why do you have this, this expectation that God ought to be loving? You know the reality is? Is there is only one religion in all human history that believes in a loving, personal God. It's Christianity. You say, well, isn't that interesting that you would think God ought to be loving and actually Christianity is the only religion really that teaches that. The reality is, is God is love, but God is also justice. In fact, it's a part of his character. In fact, he judges wrong out of a sense of love. Uh, let me illustrate this by saying, what if as a pastor I saw someone who was living out self-destructive behavior? What if as a pastor I saw someone who was living out self-destructive behavior. Is it love for me to say, oh well, it doesn't matter? No, actually that's hate. To say I'm not willing to get involved in their life and to say you're destroying yourself. But I understand that it can come across as judgmental. But I use that as a very simple illustration that actually God's justice is uh, an expression of his love. But the bottom line is that God respects our free will and he allows people to separate themselves from him. It's actually one of the, uh, the downsides to giving people free will because, yes, it, it, it is the ultimate good that they would choose to love him. But what is the ultimate bad? To refuse to love God. And to say, I will live my life for myself apart from God. And here's the reality. God will allow that. It's consistent with him allowing free will in our life. If people so choose, they can live separated from God Here's the punchline. Hell is the ultimate expression of that. I don't believe God sends people to hell. I believe people choose to send themselves to hell to say I will live my life for myself. I will be my own God. And hell becomes the ultimate expression of that. Brother Shane, my book of the week. C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. Somebody can borrow this if they want it. It's, a, it's an interesting book. Uh, has anybody read it? Good. The Great Divorce is about heaven and hell, C.S. Lewis. It's a fictitious story. It's about uh, a field trip on a bus that people leave from hell and go to heaven to check it out. Obviously, it's a fictitious story. It's like, hey, anybody that wants to go and check out heaven, why don't you all load up on the bus? And he traces the people. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. Uh, 
the punchline of the story for C.S. Lewis, and obviously this is after he's become a Christian, all the people on that bus take a field trip to hell, and you know what their ultimate decision is that day? They don't want to stay there. And ultimately, spiritually, it comes to the place because they want to live their lives for themselves. It's fictitious. Don't, don't jump on me about my theology or C.S. Lewis. I think the great line that one of the angels speaks to the man who is the main character in the book this is, this is like, boom. This is what he says to the man at some point. This is probably two-thirds of the way through the book. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Or those to whom God says in the end, thy will will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Uh, oh, in the reason for God, uh, Timothy Keller, and I'm, I'm about finished. Timothy Keller says, uh, his, his one-liner, I think, he says, hell then is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Hell then is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Uh, hey, stand with me this morning and let me, let me say this to close. The Christian faith is very consistent and it is cohesive uh, in what it teaches about the presence of evil. That God made a perfect world and people rebelled from God's perfection and his standards of goodness. And all of human relationships and human beings and our world uh, was broken. God, out of his love for us, came himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and Christ suffered for us. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it is through Jesus Christ, only through Jesus Christ, that He doesn't offer us a set of morality or set of rules, but He offers us a change of heart on the inside through His Spirit. And honestly, Christians are a work in progress from that day forward. And the reality is, we never get to where we 
ought to be until the day he takes us home, which is the assurance we have, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. Amen. I think I'll talk more about this next week as I tell a story. Um, But um, we have a reason to believe. And I believe Christianity has a cohesive, consistent understanding of life as we really see it. And it's revealed in the scripture. Uh, Let me pray. Um, I'm at the front at the end of the service. If you'd like to visit with me, I'll I'll be hanging around. I think most excellent way. Y'all have a, y'all, no Super Bowl party. Ooh, I'm sorry. Scratch that. Uh, Don't be coming and hanging around up up at the church. Uh, Okay, sorry. Open mouth, insert foot. I was so well for about an hour. My my first mistake, an hour, an hour and a half. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you that um, in the midst of our sin, that you came to suffer for us, out of love for us. Uh, That, Father, the, the justice of God might be satisfied. And so, Father, we pray that our hearts would turn towards you. In the midst of hurt and disappointment, Father, I pray that we would not turn away from you we would turn to you for our hope and strength and healing. And Father, we trust all that to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you.